Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. <laughs> hey, everybody, what's up? We here. We here. Yes. It's been a minute since you've been here. It's been a very long time. I was trying to adjust my shirt so that everybody could see it and read it clearly. You don't have to listen to the world. Now, where'd you get that This fun is our shirt? shirt from Stand to Reason. Because who's on the reality tour? I am on the reality tour. Yes, I am. But more important than anything, let's tell them who we are. I am Monique Dusan. I'm Krista Bontrager, this, also known as Theology Mom. I almost forgot that part. That's I, right. I am so out of tune and out rusty. of touch. I know. A little rusty. This is all the things where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Man, it's good to be back. And helping us on the show tonight and turning the, the knobs right now, there we go, is the one and only Bob Bontrager. Yes. He was the button pusher when I left. Now he's the knob turner? Yes. I don't know. He was tweaking something over there on the soundboard. And we are live, people. We yes, are live. we are live. Yes. The last time I was at a live show was before Nancy Piercy. And a yeah, long time ago. I think it was very, David Schmoose. A very long time ago. <laughs> so join the conversation on the live chat. The easiest way to do that is go to the YouTube feed over at the All the Things show on YouTube. But you can also talk to us occasionally. Facebook allows us to see the messages. On the Facebook streams. Yes, yes. So. Now, the Center for... Um, no, sorry. You guys, I'm so rusty. This show is currently being brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. The Theology Mom Podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. That's right. And you can go check out Family 210 at family210.com. This is the shirt I designed. There's another one I designed, Speak Truth to Error. Something that Monique likes to say. Truth mm-hmm. has no color. Another thing I like to say. So you can go get your your CFBU merch or other random designs by people in, in our family. Basically. And $10 of every shirt goes to help our family. And um, tonight's moderators are Allison Wardrip. And Laura Hartley. That's right. So yes. they're helping everyone... Uh, play nicely together. And they also are really great about posting additional resources that we might mention and um, helping to answer questions as they come up. And make sure that you... Another great way to support the show is by sharing the show. Share the show. Like it. Share it. Comment on it. All of these things help to wake up the robots. Yes, yes. And push out the content. I made a post earlier this afternoon that 95% of our followers don't see our content. That's crazy. I know. So make sure that you've subscribed to the Center for Biblical Unity um, email list because then we send you the digital newsletter every week and you get all the social media highlights and show links and everything delivered right to your inbox on Sunday mornings. It's been a big week. We've only been home for about 10 minutes. Yeah. When did we get home? We got home. <laughs> I, don't remember. I don't remember when we got home. But yes. And you know Ooh. what? We Okay. So we got home on we Thursday. Le- okay. We, were, we got home on Thursday and we fly At out. midnight a, or something. Yeah. yeah. And we fly out again this coming Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. So 
we went first to the the women in apologetics retreat. Yes, we were women with apologetics and we were retreating. Yes, right. And so we were in the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area. An area that I never knew existed before this trip. It's a lot of vacation homes, people. And yours truly and Monique went to, oh, here's the one and only Dollywood. We had I a never very knew nice that time. existed either. I it's called like, it Dixieland. It's the most wholesome amusement park I've ever been to. Yes. It was a lot of fun. And what they had different gospel, well, they, country kind of gospelish. Yeah, people singing. So it's and, called Southern gospel. So yes, they're. Oh, I didn't know it had a name. Yeah. There we go. It's they, different than black gospel. It's called Southern gospel. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was Christian music and black gospel. <laughs> didn't know. Didn't know. Then um, they also they we went to a bird show. We did. That thing was a um, woo. That was I'm, fun. Yes, it we was. We saw fun. a real live bald eagle and oh he was so majestic and regal i, yes. I said wow look at that. i don't like birds no she doesn't and so she brought that thing close to me i said the devil they is alive the birds so yes close. they just walk them by you and let them their little wings be going breezing in your hair my hair wasn't blowing but i know yours was <laughs> i said the devil is alive you need to move that away from me if it's not a snack don't bring a bird by me there was a big buzzard that like yeah it was flying like inches no, from no my- it was i was not okay with that i said dolly we don't need to talk Holla at your girl, Dolly. Because yeah, right. I can't, can't, be, can't be there with the buzzard. It was a turkey buzzard? Something like that. A turkey yeah. vulture. That's, Tur- that's, what, that's it what it was. A yeah. turkey vulture. Now, we had a great time with the gals from Women in Apologetics. There was like 13, 14 of us 14 there. 14 of us in total. All staying at what I assume was like an Airbnb or yeah. vacation, someone's vacation house. It was very nice. We had a very nice time. We've worked yeah. closely with them for the last year and a half. And some of them we were meeting in person for the very for first, the very first time. time. And mm-hmm. we'd only ever seen them on Zoom. And so it was just a lot of fun. Um, you know, Shout out to Katian and Rachel for making sure it was all planned. And yeah. Their whole team. That was I the know. most planned retreat I've ever been on. Yes. Beth and <laughs> yeah, was, um, Amy. Yeah. Yes. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of fun. Um, then after we went to... Now, when you want to talk about this, we had a sting... We, okay, so Tennessee must be going through like a stink bug phase. <laughs> Y'all, we walked in our room and was like, oh, look, there's a stink bug right there just waiting for us. I said, the devil is a lie. It's time for us to switch... Switch room. rooms. We did. Okay. No. Mm-mm. Nope. Bugs. Yep. So then after the We Are Retreat, we went to Nashville yes. for five days Stay with my favorite auntie. Had kind of a prayer goal planning for 2022 retreat. Yes. Yes, and we did. we did break away one day to go do some sightseeing in downtown Nashville. Got a couple shots here. There you are. Now tell us where you are there. I am at the National African American um, National African American Music Museum. There it is. So you're there, you're looking at the exhibit about uh, the colonial period. And um, but it was that was an amazingly well done museum. It was awesome. It was so good. There were so many um, different activities you could do and music you could listen to from different eras. And yeah, super educational. Mm -hmm. And if people follow us on Instagram, which is always make sure you follow us on Instagram. There was an Instagram story 
of Monique dancing. So if you missed that, I don't know what to tell you. It was only up there for 24 hours. Um, it's not okay. <laughs> it's not okay. But they had an exhibit where there's like a screen and there are people that you can learn like a little routine from. It's kind of like dancing karaoke. Yes. That that would be the perfect way to do it or to say it. Yeah. And so I did and then a right across karaoke. the street. So if you ever want to go to the museum, just look for the Ryman Auditorium, which is a big building that looks like this. It looks like a big church. It was built as a church in the 1880s, but it's a famous country music venue now. So it's immediately across the street from the Ryman Auditorium. Now, we went to the Ryman last time we were in Nashville. We didn't go there this time but that's oh, but an, she wanted to that was another that's another great destination to go so we had a lot of fun and of course we went to see the johnny cashman well we didn't go to the museum this time we just went and you got a shirt i got a new but shirt we also went to a honky tonk and i don't know if that is a bad word that i shouldn't say publicly but that's what the sign said so i'm not trying to lead people astray but it it's called a honky tonk and this is a a place where you go for live and you, music live music and you can listen to some really good country music and i've never been a fan of country music until recently that's right but it was so it was that was so much fun yeah we had a good time got some lunch and sat there for about an hour listened to live music just really fun day and so we had a couple of fun moments of sort of a mixture of business and pleasure um and then we go out on the road again this next week yeah we had the planning time was a, <laughs> was a really good time and um i think really productive i'm looking forward to 2022 and what god has in store yeah so should we get into the topic for tonight go ahead lay it on us all right so tonight i um we entitled the show the gospel's answer to racial caste systems and we're going to bring on our friend uh joe miller here in just a minute but as part of the setup i thought maybe we could just sort of talk about you know one of the things that you and i frequently say is that race is a social construct mm -hmm. so let's start with what does that actually mean to say that race is a social construct and how does that connect to this idea of racial caste systems well i okay goodness i am um, maybe we should ask joe but <laughs> we will but i want to do the setup when i when i think about race as being the social construct it what i'm saying is that race wasn't um something that we see necessarily in the bible it wasn't something um given to to mankind as a way to separate people out people are separated by ethnicity but the the concept of race came along maybe in the 14th century 15th century um as a way to separate people almost into caste systems into groups that were good and bad and it really benefited people with lighter skin or white skin to say that these people were pure these people were good and then the darker the skin um the more bad or impure the the person or the group of people were and so that's where we we first get the word like race and we see it come onto the scene um probably the word race probably before we actually see the systems coming in but just this threading through that is man-made. Yeah. It was made by man to be able to keep people separated. Whereas ethnicity, we one, we can see ethnicity in the scripture, but we also see um, ethnic, ethnic groupings according to boundary lines. Yeah. So um, Joey's got a good question, but I'm going to wait until we get Joe on here. And, is that and, Joey my cousin? Yes. Oh, hey, Joey. 
Yes. Well, ask your question after we get into the conversation. I was just about to eat me some pineapple pizza, too. <laughs> thinking about there. Joey. But we're going to just kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and explore this idea of race as a social construct, yeah. the history, the cultural forces, the scientific forces that all went into that and kind of how the gospel helps provide a better hope and a better path out yeah. of that framework. And Joe is so knowledgeable. He's like a real force yeah. to, to be reckoned with. And so I'm looking forward to the information that he's going to bring tonight. All right, let's get our friend Dr. Joe Miller. Brother on. Joe. There he is. Hey, Joe. Hey, ladies. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, God is good. Life is crazy. The world is wild, but God is always good. That's in the right. Midst of the wildness. So just try to cling on to that as much as I can. Oh, you're about to make me fan you. We haven't even gotten to the, the <laughs> show real good yet. But yes, God is good. <laughs> Now, we should probably say that uh, Joe Miller is on our Academic Advisory Council. He, is, he has 17 different degrees. He Did does. you know this? He's very educated. <laughs> Almost 17. And he's working on another one. You have like three masters and two doctorates, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm close to finishing the second one right now. I actually am. Okay, Lord willing, this is, I'm hoping I'll get my oral defense for my current PhD in, uh, done this December and I should be done once that's over with. Wow. But I've done all the writing. All the chapters have been submitted, pretty much all approved. I'm just now crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and I should be done here pretty soon. Wow. So that's I'm awesome. I'm excited about that. Good for you. I'm excited for you. That's yeah. a great accomplishment. So yeah. we did a little bit of setup. So let's let's get into it here now, Joe, because right now, you know, there is a big cultural conversation that's happening in our country um, where – you know, the the assertion is being made that our entire country was founded on white supremacy and yeah. black slavery. So maybe we can um, kind of get into that a little bit as part of the setup for how we mm -hmm. arrive at these racial hierarchies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's actually a pretty good starting place when you think about it, because. Um, you know, when you move from whatever people's perceptions are to then trying to unpack that and they say, well, let's look at the facts, let's look at reality behind that. So we're not getting misled by uh, things that really just on their face are not true. So that claim kind of has been popularized uh, most recently through that 1619 project, which was uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, right? So she was, a she won a Pulitzer Prize for this, uh, basically stuff she wrote for the New York Times. Uh, since then, I'll just point out that most historians, whether they're Christian or not, have recognized it's just full of problems and errors. Um, she's not uh, an academic. She has no terminal degrees. Uh, she just made a lot of assertions with no foundation. But it still gets out there into the ethos, into you know, the, the, the world, and it's, just the, uh, and it's just out there floating. But I guess there's two parts to that. So first, the slavery claim you know, is the first part. The second is the white supremacy part. So the first problem is there was no United States in 1619, which when she says is the, the real founding, because that's when the first slaves uh, from Africa were brought to the North American continent. So she's claiming that's the founding of the U.S., but it's not the founding of the U.S., that's just slavery. And the fact is, slavery has existed 
pretty much from what I've read on every continent and every culture and amongst every people, regardless if they were black, brown, yellow, green, purple, whatever, they've all had some form of slavery. So using that as some sort of unique thing that, that Western civilization invented is just um, historically uh, not factual. So the U.S. then doesn't start till 1776, get the signing, drafting, the Declaration of Independence. It's not formally established till 1791, right? And that's when all the 13 uh, colonies became states by ad ad adopting the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Um, and so it's well past your dates. But one of the things about that, like the, um, the three-fifths compromise, you'll, you'll hear this, and this has driven me insane for decades. You know, the three-fifths compromise, you know, this is a part of the thing that says that only three-fifths of the votes from Blacks in the South would count or for representation in the federal government, right? So, you know, the house is determined by representation. Well, the compromise was only three fifths of uh, blacks would count. And so today the claim is, oh, well that, see that's because white people thought every black person was only three fifths of a human. Well, first of all, it was only every three of five people counted. It wasn't every person counted as three fifths of a human. So even on its face, that's false, but, to, but true, it's the people that were opposed to the spread of slavery that wanted the black vote not to count because they knew that that would be overrepresentation of the South. And if the South had dominance in the federal system, they would keep expanding slavery and they didn't want slavery to expand. So that actual whole part was to keep slavery from expanding, not to de you know, dehumanize blacks or to advance the cause of slavery. So that's the first piece of that. And I don't know if you want to pause there. I can get to the white supremacy part too, but maybe there's a question that came up with that or. Uh, no, I was just listening. As I was listening to you, I was just thinking, sure. wow, you know, the way that I was taught it, like either orally through, you know, being at home or I think even from some teachers as, as a younger child or in um, like junior high, the idea that, that blacks were not seen as being fully human. Now, I do think that um, there were people who owned slaves. There are people today who might not see black people or people of oh, color and whatever, you know, as being fully human. But that wasn't the, the issue with the three-fifths compromise. It yeah. was that those who were opposing slavery didn't want the South to be able to continue in slavery. And exactly. if the votes of the slaves actually counted, there would be more votes that would allow yeah. for slavery to continue. Who are the slaves going to vote for? Whoever their master says. So this yes. is not exactly a system of democracy at that point. Mm -hmm. And so it was to limit the, the control or abuse potentially uh, of future human beings that the North wanted to limit from the South. So that's that first piece that, that says that's wrong. The second part was, you know, it wasn't founded on slavery then, uh, but was it founded on white supremacy? Well, <laughs> no. And that gets back to what you said. And mostly because uh, the social construct of race didn't even exist at the founding. I think you said at the beginning, the 14th century or 1400s. Or something. I was talking about the, the term race itself. Yeah, that's actually not until that's actually not until the late uh, 1700s, early okay. 1800s uh um, that you get any of that kind of stuff coming in. Um, and so or I'm sorry, actually, I take that back. So uh, you're talking about the uh, late 18th century, early 19th century, because uh, you don't get that till Kant and Hume come aboard and really uh, Kant's the bigger influence there. 
who developed this construct of race. And so uh, there's no there's no way that that construct of race that, you know, whiteness or white supremacy even existed at that point, at least in terms of a, a full blown philosophy. Again, it doesn't mean people didn't hate people, but to say that it, that 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 existed. Um, it just wasn't recognized uh, to be, and it wasn't a central feature. Uh, and if folks are interested, there's a gal named Sally Hatch uh, Gray. She's at Mississippi State University, and she has an article called Kant's Race Theory. She traces that in a journal article that, you know, from uh, 19, or 2011, 2012. So people can write down that name, look it up. Uh, you know, these, these things are out there. They're not like secrets. Uh, so to make that claim that that was a key founding principle is just can't it just actually really couldn't be on the face of it Go did you want to ask all right so then that makes me wonder then is when did slavery mm-hmm. become a system of white supremacy that was used to specifically oppress yeah. black people and you know targeting them you know yeah it, it, how did that work yeah so really the the flow of what happens so you have slavery that that really dominates you know, you know, it, it's a part of at least, but dominates many civilizations for thousands and thousands of years. And so no surprise uh, when the United States and people come across even before the United States existed, people, uh, slavery was a part of that system to, to one degree or another. For some people, they rejected it, others accepted it, and it was, but it pretty much was there. But since the concept of race really started to take shape, again, like I said, really didn't take dominance until the middle of the 19th century. And in, in about 1835, there's a really a turning point in the U.S. slavery system. So a guy named George McDuff, he was the 55th governor of South Carolina. He was a U.S. senator. He took up the cause of slavery before the South Carolina legislature. He argued that slavery was no longer to be seen as sort of this lamentable evil. You know, the, the Historically, it's like, well, hey, you know, there's just some poor people, then there's slaves or people that it's needed for economic purposes or whatever. And this is sort of a sad thing, but it's just a necessary evil of society. He argued that it's actually necessary, that the system of slavery was necessary even more to meet the demands of the South, but it was actually a positive good that gave Black people the best chance to happiness in life. And partly he built that off of, you know, the system of the social construct of race that Kant was critical in in developing and forming. And so Macduff saw the the advocates. And this is funny because he actually people that advocated for black liberation, the abolitionists, he said them he called them like, quote, enemies of the human race. And he petitioned that every opponent of slavery, including clergy, should be punished by death for insurrection against the South because they were opposed to slavery. That's how sold out he was. Hmm. Um, and, and he even said, and one last quote, then you could jump in here. It's like, is this, it's like when you read this guy's speech, it's just wild. He said the inferiority of black people uh, was in a, indelibly, quote, marked on the face, stamped on the skin, and evinced by the intellectual inferiority and natural improvidence of the race. In other words, you know, that's, that's who they were. That's, that was their, their racial makeup. And this is where that concept of that racial construct gets tied to the skin color and to all Africans. And it really starts to take, and that's, that's the year when this, the, the, the switch gets flipped 
and sees race really as a as a sees slavery as a racial thing. Uh, before that, it really wasn't seen as a racial thing. Uh, and so that's, it, that's where that big oh, sorry. thing came. Oh, yeah. I, have no, a I have a clarifying question. Yeah, I do too. Okay. <laughs> you want to flip a coin? Yeah. <laughs> do you think part of his argument goes back to some of what we've seen in conversation about like ham and skin color or um, the mark that was put on Kane because, yeah, Kane yeah, killed Abel. Yeah, because of um, like because of the curses that have been put down either on Kane or on Ham and their descendants, was that part of the argument that he was making that they were racially inferior because of their skin color, their skin color thus being um, like divinely put on them by God because yeah. of the wickedness of their forefathers? Yeah, so that definitely was an issue at the time. And there were many theologians who had some sort of system that they tied to sort of their natural theology, you know, in some form of what we label a scientific view of it, uh, that they married with their theology that did that. I don't think Macduff was that guy. Uh, the, the thing about Macduff that was unique that wasn't done before is that you have politicians who are arguing based on the social construct of race that, that slavery is actually, again, a positive good. So, you know, for, for long periods of time, you had people theologically who would make these arguments, um, unfortunately, but they weren't the influential voice that guys like Macduff were in making this transition, this flipping point in the 1930s or 1830s. Uh, or, yeah. So, so that's, when that's, we think yeah. about um, black people as slaves and the transatlantic slave trade prior to 1835, are you trying to, to argue that um, race was just incidental, skin color was incidental? It wasn't that um, it yeah. was about, hey, let's go capture black people because we see them as inferior. It was just that's where humans were available to be captured and the skin issue was kind of secondary, but then the political climate sort of began to yeah. change based on the influence of Hume and other philosophers that now skin color became more dominant in the conversation where yeah. now dark skinned people were looked upon as being morally and intellectually defective almost. Yeah. And, and so is, is that kind of what you're, what you're arguing? Yeah, that's actually that. Yeah, that's that's really what happened. So again, like every culture, it had some form of it, but it really wasn't based on uh, race, a construct of race as we know it. It's more like Monique said earlier. Like there was ethnic, there was ethnic boundaries. There's always been tribalism. There's always been some way people have, in the common parlance, that they othered people, you know, treated them as other or as inferior. But it wasn't really based on white versus black, um, you know. So. What uniquely had in the United States then is this, you have the Enlightenment philosophy where guys like Kant and Hume really kind of racialized the view of humanity. And then you had, you know, step into the, you know, 1859, you know, you get Darwin stepping in and he, get, he used that Enlightenment perception that blacks were in, by nature inferior. He used that as a selling point for his theory. He traded in that. Uh, pretty clearly. 
And then you had physicians like doctors. There's a guy named Samuel Cartwright, 1860. He argued that the hard labor of slavery actually preserved, quote, the primitive Negro mind from reverting to its naturally lower animal state. So you get this idea of evolutionary progress where, you know, that hard labor kept, uh, you know, black people from devolving essentially into a, this more animalistic state. Well, that concept of, you know, higher human, lower human really became scientized. I, if I can make up that word, I can, because I have a lot of degrees. So I can make up. <laughs> Go uh, ahead and live it out. Yeah, that's part of the thing, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, what you're describing there, I think, is, is really that process that happened. Because, uh, you know, we can go back in history and look at that, too. But, uh, you know, I can pause there and just see if that made sense. Okay. Or I answered your question. Yeah. And so when we look at something like slavery in the ancient world, I've heard some statistics that say that um, two thirds of the ancient Roman world were were slaves. I mean, those people yeah. usually weren't became slaves because they were often captured people. And, and yeah. when the Romans were conquering um, yeah. But but other our our friend Joey was making a comment on YouTube like look mm -hmm. up the Barbary slave trade and I did Muslims captured white Christians yeah. from Southern Europe for hundreds of years as mm -hmm. slaves and so these are just yeah. examples of the fact that slavery is part of the fall it's it's endemic to the sad situation that we are in as humans that we are yeah. sinful and we like to um, control each other. We conquer each other and, 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 yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's definitely right about that. No doubt. Um, you know, so, you know, you can go back and again, we can focus on the West, but you know, we can find this in amongst African tribes. You can find this in South American peoples. We can find it anywhere, but, you know, looking at Aristotle, he had this idea of, you know, there was, there was the civilized nations and there was these barbarian nations outside, but it wasn't based on skin color because there was dark. There are people who are Greeks who were darker skinned and lighter skinned. It had nothing to do with that. Uh, the Romans, you know, although they adopted a lot from the Greeks, they treated their slave system. It was integrated to everything they did. But it was more sort of like a necessary tool for the operation of institutions. You know, they said, hey, it's just sort of how our economic system runs. And they say that, like, you're not far off in the numbers that uh, any time in the, in the first century, at a given, given period, slaves uh, were probably about one third of the population in any major urban center uh, in, in the Roman Empire. Uh, and then if you factor out the people that were emancipated, right, who were freed from slavery, usually about age 30, there's some historians that estimate that at the time of the New Testament church where Paul's writing to the church, who's dealing with these talk about being a bond slave and other stuff, 85 to 90% of those people living in Rome and throughout the you know, Italian peninsula there were probably current or former slaves. So it's, it's a massive system in that culture, but again, it wasn't racially based. And then, yeah, then you get into the middle ages and the, and the Muslims were coming into Northern and coming out of Africa into Europe and taking they took a, several million, I believe the estimates are, of, of white Europeans as slaves. But even then, it wasn't based on because they were white. It was more of a Christian. There was a Christian Muslim problem. And so the Christians in Europe came and captured the Muslims, and they made them slaves. And uh, But it was more religious than it was even skin color-ish. It had nothing really – it wasn't the, the, the real factor in it. So go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry, right. I'm, I'm still framing my question. In okay, my mind. all right. <laughs> um, so then we get to 
1835 and, and we get to the end of the civil war and we get to Darwin in the late 1850s. So even after yeah. slavery ends, you know, what's the setup that contributes to this kind of ongoing entrenched racial hierarchy mm-hmm. or racial caste system mm-hmm. where white people are looked upon as being higher in the hierarchy than darker skinned people. Yeah. So, I mean, you certainly see in this period, there's abolitionists, you know, famous names like Adam Sedgwick, Charles Sumner, Samuel Wilberforce, Wilberforce. They really saw that God's providence would one day, they believed, put an end to the African slavery, right? Um, But even there, most whites, including a lot of the abolitionists like Lincoln, uh, believed that blacks could never overcome their what was believed then as their inborn disadvantage uh, to effectively assimilate into Western civilization. So, and Lincoln was well familiar with Darwin's theory. So, you know, that goes back to Charles Darwin, who 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 used science to sort of ground this belief in racial these racial hierarchies, right? So, those the racial hierarchies existed, but Darwin said, "Hey, there's science that proves this is true." So, that was the consensus science of the day. So the consensus was blacks were biologically inferior. And so when you talk about guys like Lincoln, who believed that the system was corrupt, like actually like Darwin did too, he was opposed to slavery, but he created a whole scientific system that allowed for slavery to continue. It had no logical way to end that system because if blacks were inferior, then they're just doing the job that, you know, whether it was a secular Christians might say the job that God created them for. You know, and, and even Lincoln tried to when when he freed the slaves, he had uh, certain policies that tried to colonize uh, the emancipated blacks into like places like Liberia or Central America. So he wanted to you know send them out of the the United States because they believed they could never be assimilated. And so that's the battle that you they were having there was uh, you know freed blacks. Yeah, they had political freedom. But by then, the consensus was that Blacks were biologically by nature through natural selection had been made inferior. So even if they even if they're free, they're always going to be a lower on the scale of evolution and a lower part of that you know racial hierarchy. So what and I mean, maybe this was this more of like a regional thought? Because what about like in the South? Yeah, like in the South, because what about, you know, freed blacks who were in the North who were participating in politics, who were participating in more of the the yeah. general way of life? Because there were several black people who got elected to Congress mm-hmm. immediately after the Civil War. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a, there are certainly throughout this period, many, whether they were Christians or just mostly Christians, actually, that, that opposed those views. So certainly not everybody held, but but definitely the, I think the consensus viewpoint uh, was that that's sort of what took that's what held sway in, in the institutions of higher learning in the science, you know, the halls of science. That's what the most educated people believed. Right. Hmm. Uh, and so while your people who are voting may not have bought into those things. And many people say, well, you know, like, Oh, I know this guy, he's bright. You know, I mean, there's, 
lots of people that may not buy into that, or they believe that those uh, people, those blacks who could achieve were maybe exceptions to the, to the rule of what nature has bound them to. Uh, but no, it really, really did dominate uh, for, for a large percentage of the population, both North and South. Again, even those who opposed slavery just had this concept because of the way the, the dominant science was that the blacks were by nature inferior. And so they had to be cared for. Uh, they had to be taken care of uh, by some way, by the, if it wasn't by a master, then by the state. And so, uh, but yeah, there's certainly people that bucked that system. That certainly wasn't everybody. Uh, and there's certainly enough people, there's enough evidence that people wrote against those things. But I, I think it's pretty clear that it was a, a dominant feature of the society. Now, if that was the thought among, you know, like the educational elite, to what degree did you see, or do we see Christians participating in that train of thought as well? That like blacks are, you know, less intelligent and or less dark, capable. yeah, less capable and all of that. Yeah, no, that's a great question because I think, you know, just to jump back a little bit, you know, when guys like Kant and Hume are inventing this racial construct that we take for granted today. You know, that's why you get people assuming that racism has always been there, even though the concept didn't didn't even exist, you know, but they, it's such a part of our cultural, con, you know, way we see things that people don't realize how recent that was. But people battled against it. Uh, folks can write down the name of a, a philosopher, Christian guy named James Beattie. Uh, and he looked at that logic of black inferiority before there was the Darwinian construct, the science of it. And he wrote a book in 1770, an essay on the nature of immutability of truth. Uh, and he had clear statements. He's like, you know, there's no way God, he actually is pretty clear. He said, it's only the atheist who could believe such a foolish idea that blacks were by nature created inferior. And it's only once they get rid of this creation, that the idea that we're all descended from Adam, that all humans are equal or made or Im image of God, that they can develop these sort of racialized hierarchies. So he was pretty clear. The gospel for him, the truth of Genesis was the, a great constraint upon what would soon become the academic philosophical consensus. And then you can even go like further into like the 1850s, uh, again, around the time of Darwin. But there was a guy, Reverend Dr. Thomas Smith, um, and he argued in a book he had called The Unity of Human Races for the unity of all humans, again, tied to the person of Adam. And that observations of, he said, what these racial differences were really, you know, on a scientific level, just about environment. They're not fixed or intrinsic properties. So the whole idea that he felt, and there's people that go back uh, you know, 50, 60 years that I've read, uh, actually hundreds, hundreds of years that, that believed all of those differences that people saw on skin color, skin difference, hair color, shapes, all those, you know, what scientists called phenotypic differences, right? Were all due to environment, uh, weather, you know, just whatever they were brought up in, but had nothing to do with inherent inferiority. And it wasn't until again, like Darwin said, no, no, that's, the environment can't explain all these differences. It must be biologically uh, selected superior inferiority kind of things through, through nature, the way it works. So, but there were Christians definitely that worked against that and they spoke it and, and they tied that more often than not to Genesis and often then to the work of Christ too. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it really was the Adam, the Genesis thing. A couple of points I want to make is that one is that the, the picture that's painted today is that all Christians, you know, 
nearly without exception, participated in systems of white supremacy, propping those up, maintaining those structures. But history is more complicated than that. History is much more messy than that. And yes, there definitely were Christians who went along with this cultural narrative, but there were also Christians who gained influence Mm -hmm. and spoke out against it because of their belief in historical Adam and Eve and what they saw as being implications from that, which brings me to the second point I want to make is that Monique and I have taken a strong position on a historical Adam and Eve um, as part of our doctrinal statement, as part of our founding documents, because we believe that is critical, a critical theological and philosophical and ethical Mm -hmm. foundation for having a conversation about racial unity. So maybe Joe, you can comment on, on, on that issue. Yeah. Well, that drives to the heart of what I've spent the last, you know, six years, four years really focused in on. And my whole dissertation is really that the belief in historical Adam and Eve as the sole progenitors, as the sole, you know, the first humans from whom all humans then propagate uh, is provides the most coherent uh, foundation for rejecting racism and ultimately through Christ, the, you know, racial reconciliation. Uh, so without that core doctrine, I, I, you know, when I started that concept, I said, I don't know if I can even make that case. I wasn't sure, you know, there's, sure there's cause lots of people say I, I oppose racism, but the whole point is to have a, a coherent worldview, a, a worldview opposition to racism. In other words, a view that says this is wrong in every culture, in every place, in every time, not just what we as a cultural g- agree to, right? not this sort of synthetic truth that says, well, if you and I agree, then it's okay. But somewhere else, maybe that's okay. There's no, you have to have something outside above your culture. And I think when you lose the historical Adam and Eve, despite what many Christians really want to see that the research I've done uh, seems pretty clear that uh, as soon as people abandon that core doctrine, they ended up embracing some form of uh, racial hierarchy, some racial, some racist policy or racist belief and uh, I, I just couldn't get away from that uh, in what I've been reading. I think it's, I can't stress how important that point is enough because if we're going to, it's not enough just to say I'm against racism. Mm-hmm. I think you make yeah. an extremely important point that Christians need to put forward a, a case based yeah. on scripture and having a coherent Christian worldview. I'm wondering if we can get into like the 20th century and how we as a as a country started to come out of the idea from yeah. transitioning from mm-hmm. the higher places of learning and science mm-hmm. and academia to now we're going to acknowledge mm-hmm. that uh, humans are humans no matter their skin yeah. color and they're equally capable. We might not have done this right. Yeah. 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 You know, that's a great question because I mean, certainly it's true. We do still see these, these vestiges of the scientific racism that uh, folks have tried to get rid of, but they still have kept this naturalistic worldview. Um, And so we still see it in politics, you know, with, with just the concepts of, you know, black people can't survive unless, 
you know, we pass laws to help them survive because they're just, they can't overcome, right? Uh, blacks are in some way inferior. I think that's the nature of a lot of people's mindset that they don't even realize that ties back to these horrible ideas. Uh, and that's really bad. But you're right is that, you know, here's the thing is it's easy today to say you oppose racism, right? Because that's the dominant view. But the thing is, how, how do you say that when it's not the dominant view? And to that, we have to look at the Christians who stood against racism, who stood against slavery, two separate things, but they did come to meet, but, but, you know, against both those systems when they dominated the world. So look at slavery. I mean, the first organized uh, anti-slavery protest that I've heard about, as far as back I know, this is the oldest one. It goes to German, uh, it's the Germantown Society of Friends in 1688. Uh, and they voiced their op opposition to this whole system. So it goes back to 1688, a year before, you know, they say that it was founding part of the Americas. But the Christians who knew the human sacredness was built into every person knew it was wrong. You can go through, you know, all through when Darwin, you know, scientized, you know, put science behind the authority of science behind it. Um, there were Christians opposed to that because they tied it to something that transcended culture and a truth that transcended science, which is an ever-changing exploration of, you know, fact-finding exploration mission, right? So they tied it to some truth that was higher than that, which was the truth of Genesis 127 that we're all created in the image of God and the truth that in Christ, he breaks down those dividing walls. And so um, it's not enough to extract racism from science, you know, in the 1960s, when, when it became popular to say race was a social construct, it always has been a social construct. It's just the naturalist uh, progressives used to think it was biological. Now that they realized, gosh, that didn't turn out so well with Hitler and folks, we have to extract our view from that, but we still don't want to acknowledge God. So they said, oh, it's a social construct. But slaves, uh, you know, there's a guy, and I'm jumping around from years, but I just, there's just so many people here. There's a slave. His name is Wesley John Gaines. Uh, he wrote a book in 1897. Uh, I, I write about him in my, in my dissertation stuff. I was just fascinated by his book. The title of his book was The Negro and the White Man. And he says, look, I don't need your pity. I don't need anything. I just need an opportunity because I know I'm equal to the white man. Our unity, and he said, look, we can't be blacks. We can't hate the whites. We can't do this. Even what they did was terrible because we're all unified through the person of Adam. There is no distinction between us. We're all descendants of the same man and woman, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God. And so that's been a key to overcoming that. And it still is today because there's no way to fight the, the cultural consensus unless you have something outside the culture. And the gospel is the only thing that gives us something outside the culture to know, to put guardrails when the culture goes too far, you yeah. know, and that, that, that really comes down to the, again, those two key points, Genesis one I've done a show. I have my shirts, you know, the Bethlehem Elohim, which means in the image of God. And then the promise of salvation in Christ that breaks down those social, all social constructs that divide us. Because the Bible doesn't talk about race, but it talks about social constructs, you know, neither bond, you know, and, and all the social institutions of hierarchies that, that societies build, all of those fall to the side under the unity we have in Christ. So without those two pieces of creation and Christ, we have no way to battle against the culture when there's consensus and when the consensus dehumanizes. 
And that's that's real good. I think we were going to ask, you know, how does the gospel speak a better yeah. word in in looking at racial hierarchies and and set yeah. people free from that? But I think you you actually yeah, kind of yeah, answered it. You kind of you know you, you 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 just went well, in. Yeah, but I want I want you guys to because you guys talk about this a lot too, mm-hmm. and I think you have some things to say on that as well because I think you know this is the positive side that we need to leave this show you know show with you know because. Looking at this history is important. It's an under, important to understand the history of race, where it developed, uh, what part it's played in creating racial hierarchies, what the part that science has pay, pay, played in that. But it's that Christian worldview grounded in those truths that really make the difference. And they have historically for hundreds and hundreds, if not, well, really thousands of years, but in you know our recent history, the last couple hundred years, uh, those have been critical doctrines that have kept Christians, Christians used to write the same kind of stuff as, you know, there's that movie we talked about before, eugenics, the scientific racism of the day, and Christians used to have to contest who could write the best eugenics sermon about racial hygiene. Uh, You know, this is not, if you have, if you call yourself a Christian, but don't tie your theology to a a transcendent truth, a transcendent reality of a a revealed doctrine in the word of God, then you you are subject to falling prey for all of these you know, social constructs and the cultural consensus. That's the only guardrail we have. So people really have to know that that's why when we talk about these things, you know, I get really passionate about that because I didn't even realize to this until I really started it again. Like I always used to believe, okay, you know, we're creating God's image and Jesus saves us and stuff. But when you read firsthand the Christians who who rejected those doctrines and what the road that that led them down, I we need that today because we are going down that same path. And I know I don't want to get on the sidetrack of critical race theory or those issues, um, but we see that there, there might be some room for you on the sidetrack. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we see that there are movements today that, in the name of you know uh, doing good for society or you know helping society are going to go too far in dehumanizing others. Uh, the willingness to dehumanize in the name of what is good has always led to evil because the, the, the social Darwinists thought that they were doing good for society. They thought they were helping keep society clean and pure. So you get the segregationists who said, you know, we don't want blacks to associate with whites. That was a eugenic principle. The eugenists wanted blacks to be segregated from whites. But CRT says, hey, blacks need to be segregated from whites. So you get your black only dorms and you get your black only clubs because whites can't be with blacks. The eugenists would have been happy with that. Well, why did they get there? Well, their motivation is different. Uh, They're not they're trying to humanize. They're trying to make sure blacks are, you know, in some in value deeply. Right. So their motivation is right. But they have no guardrail to say, okay. I'm going too far with these solutions because now in these solutions, I'm creating dehumanizing uh, uh, policy towards one racial group or another racial group. And I think again, that's the only way, the only way to abandon this. And I'd like you to jump on this is I think the only way to, be, they make race the centerpiece of resolving racism. The Christian worldview says we have to abolish the social construct of race, not deny its impact on society, but move to eliminate the racial construct. And that's the way we get to humanizing all people and value valuing everybody. Yeah, I think that was really the the focus of the show that we did last week of, you know, how the gospel um, calls us to put our social constructs in the backseat, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. social constructs there may be. And I think that your point about 
uh, Christianity as a worldview must stand outside the culture, whatever culture it's it's finding itself in, in order to critique it. There has to be something that roots us and grounds us that is um, a transcendent truth and mm-hmm. that can critique every culture and um, calls us. It, it, it otherwise we just end up sort of going with the stream of whatever culture is doing. We sprinkle Jesus on it and then we go. And I think that scientific racism is a a clear example of that. Um, And we did a whole show about scientific racism last July. So people can, we'll put that in the show notes for everyone that they can reference that where we went into eugenics and Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood and, now the Nazis and for the Sanger part. Yeah, all all of those fun things. <laughs> but I think that the the point is is that if you don't really understand Christianity as a worldview mm-hmm. and how it all connects together, it is it is much more than just accepting Jesus in your heart. Yes. It is a fully orbed network yeah. of beliefs, and that is what helps to ground us as Christians so that we don't get swept away by the culture and end up sprinkling yep. Jesus on something as horrific as racial hierarchies. And that's what's happened in the past. You know, we just put the name Jesus on top of the, of the social you know, consensus, the scientific consensus and think, Oh, well, we're, we're sacralizing it. We're giving it, you know, spiritual value, but, Without that, without that tether, that ground to that transcendent truth of Scripture, we just end up being dragged along wherever the winds lead. You know, Paul says by being dragged, you know, and blown by every wind of doctrine, uh, and that that will hurt our hermeneutics, that will hurt our theology, and that will hurt the way we are really called to change the world. Because it's true, we we are we are world changers. Mm-hmm. We are called to battle against you know, the evil that we see in the world, but we know it's a spiritual battle as well. But, um, but, you know, we have to do it in a way that, that doesn't dehumanize, you know, because the end does not justify the means. Sorry. We're just looking at the comments. No, that's fine. So you, um, you, you caught us there for a minute. No. And I think, <laughs> yeah, it was like different oh. headlights. <laughs> uh, what is he, doing? I, he stopped. Yeah. I, I think though, Another point that I really want us to make is that there's such a, a a pressure right now for Christians to go along, even with cultural narratives about race. Mm-hmm. And we must stand against that. We, we still find ourselves in a countercultural conversation where we are still saying, you know, one race that that yeah. humans come from um you know one source one original pair and mm-hmm. that that is the best hope for racial unity and that when we come into Christ then those social constructs again take a back seat yeah. and and that goes against the culture the culture wants us to believe that almost the most important thing i notice about joe miller is your skin color. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the most important thing I notice about Monique is her skin color and that I proceed in how I interact with you from that that mm-hmm. standpoint. Because that standpoint, my skin color creates certain specific truths. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you have to participate with me according to the truths that are presented based upon my skin color. So we're still yeah. in a posture of having a lot of conversation about racial constructs mm-hmm. in- yeah. instead of yeah. leaving it behind. Yeah, and I think what people, let me phrase it this way. So Genesis 127 gives us the framework to know racism is wrong, but what Christ does on the cross gives us the power to overcome what is wrong. Because what we're talking about here is not um, a weak mind. Oh, if we just all come to know Jesus, then everything will wash away. No, we recognize that there are there are there is evil in the culture. The Christian message is not one of you know that's the, that's a people try to paint Christians as you don't care about the culture. It's only theology, you know, you're just arguing theology. No, I'm saying Christ gives us the power and to overcome those cultural constructs, those cultural myths, those fables that the culture creates about us. So what that says about Monique, what the culture says about Monique because of her skin color, what it says about me because of my skin color. Yes, that has a real world impact, but that's an invention of the culture. The question is, how do I know it's an invention? And how can I say that 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 cultural mythology, that cultural fable doesn't define who I am and doesn't constrain me? Well, I know it because, again, pointing back to the scripture, that two-pronged approach from Genesis and, and from Jesus. And so that's the way to really make change. And it is about power. It is about overcoming systems, but it has to be overcome through the cross of Christ. Amen. I'm going to go to some comments. Hmm. <laughs> they acting up in here. So <laughs> Joe, yeah, on YouTube. So Joey starts out with saying, be less white. Or actually he starts out with saying, um, well, Katie King gives you a mic drop. And then Joey scroll says, down a little bit, Bob. Dismantle whiteness. And then the devil is always trying to separate, be less white. But then Katie King comes with, with I think, an, an important comment because he goes, um, more, more like don't act like your skin color makes you superior in any way. And mm-hmm. I think that if you thread that out, that doesn't necessarily have to do with white supremacy. But I think a lot of the, the conversation right now in whiteness and anti-racism People who hold to that, white people who hold to that would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm automatically, you know, up here and, and the culture automatically kind of sees me up here just simply because I, I wear this skin color. Are you Does talking about like white privilege? Yeah, like white privilege or white progressive. There's there's always a from white progressive. I'm sorry. There's always a conversation from what I've seen as to the idea that I automatically have privilege. I automatically have something that you don't have. And that kind of makes me a little bit better in some way. So I now need to make some policies for you to help you out. Well, and then there's there's also also policies for people with darker skin color. Like you don't know how to get a driver's license. You don't know how to get to the DMV. I mean, these are all things we've seen on the news. Like, well, we can't have, for example, all the conversation about voter ID. Well, black people don't know how to get to the DMV to get a driver's license. Well, that's just, you know what? I'm not even going to say that because we live. <laughs> but, but that to yeah. me seems like an example of us kind of treating black people like they're not very intelligent. That's, yes, that's, I think that's a lot of the point of the conversation yeah. of, of what yeah. is posted. But then it, have been good to do that for many, many decades, unfortunately. Then it says, and don't act like your skin color. Katie King says, and don't act like your skin color means you're inferior. And I completely agree. Like you can't Mm -hmm. um, always say, well, it's the white man's fault. 
and because that automatically puts you in a place of you what you don't not that you don't control your destiny but you don't have choice you don't have free will you don't get to participate in your life in a certain way you aren't inferior to white people um but But it's a very subtle attitude i mean even i remember i i think i've mentioned this before in the show that i have this little hobby of watching old mlk speeches on youtube or any flight that we're on yeah yes (laughs) And, uh, you know, it, it strikes me that one of his key themes is about elevating and humanizing the, you know, changing black people. the mindset. But now I understand I have an insight into why that was such a big conversation for him, because there was this sort of pervasive underlying belief that there was something kind of intellectually mm-hmm. defective about people with darker skin yes, that they were less intelligent or their hair was less beautiful or their skin was less beautiful. And he, I, it makes more sense to me now why that was such a big theme for him. Mm-hmm. And even talking, there's one famous speech where he talks about the dignity of the black man who is a garbage worker, who picks up the garbage mm-hmm. that, that all work has dignity and that all work has value. Even that flows out of the idea of the image of God yes. and mm-hmm. that um, that there is dignity in all work, no matter your yeah. skin color. Yeah. So these are all kind of interconnected themes that I yeah. see that are connected to this this discussion. Now, I need to go to Leo Wakefield's comment because okay. this comment Uh-oh. almost took me out. Uh-oh. Says, Katie, anytime a person or group says you have to listen to them because of my skin, cult- because of my skin culture um, or culture, I guess it is a problem. Light or dark meat, it is all chicken. We should listen, but not because of intersection. I said, yes and amen. It is all chicken. You that- do. You do like a good chicken. I do like me a good chicken leg. I'm not going to like chicken wing. Yes. <laughs> I'm not. I am more for the dark meat when it comes to the chicken. But I mean, some seasoned white meat is good too. Yeah. And I'm only talking about chicken people. Right. I don't want to distract you from your food thing going on, but uh, <laughs> let me just say one thing on that because I think that's what he's saying. There's really important. And Christians don't fall into this trap. This is a, a often a little bait and switch that happens with the CRT folks that in this conversation. You know, uh, it's true. You know, our experience is unique. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with saying that, Monique, you've had a life experience that gives you insight that I may not have. That's, that's nothing. That's not counter to the Christian worldview. But what is done is they, they take that truth. That's something that it does, we'd all agree upon. And then they extrapolate that to mean that you only have access to truth if you have a certain skin color or not. And if you are of another skin color, then you are blinded to truth based on your racial, you know, construct that society society has assigned to you so there's two things be careful when you're listening to that that one makes sense one goes too far yes there's wisdom we can all learn from each other and we all have different experiences worth listening to and i can learn from people who have gone through different experiences but you know to say then that we're that there's no capacity to learn that our race, our skin color blinds us to truth or makes us, gives us access to special truth that nobody else can have. That's not the same thing as saying we have insight and wisdom to offer. So I think that comment kind of gets that, uh, gets that distinction. And I think uh, that commenter was right. I just wanted to point out that that's 
don't fall into the trap of, oh, well, you know, like denying both parts of that. Yeah, that's good. The whole chicken's good. (laughs) She's still on the chicken. I know, she's hungry. She's clearly hungry. This is true. Joe, remind us again um, about what you're up to in ministry and how people can stay connected to you. Yeah, so the easiest way to connect with me is at my site morethancake.org. So I got my hands in a lot of, uh, the, you know, in a lot of, uh, a lot of irons and a lot of fires. So I, I work for a group called Ratio Christi, doing campus work with students, discipleship through an apologetics bent. Uh, I have my own center for cultural apologetics. I do some speaking and teaching. Matter of fact, next month I'm speaking at North Coast Calvary Chapel on critical race theory. I've got a mm-hmm. two-hour evening them, and if people aren't familiar, that's like the the mega church out here uh, at the Calvary Chapel system out here in California. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and so I get around not as much as you, ladies. I'm not as popular as you, um, but I do we get love around you, a few Joe. places yeah. out here with that. So you know, so um, uh, but I'm doing those things. But you can find all that information where to connect with me at morethancake.org. Very good. And Joe's got a podcast and mm-hmm. a ton of good resources on his YouTube channel. So go check him out. Uh, there's a couple of really good comments on YouTube that I'd love us to talk about before we uh, let Joe run away. Um, our, our sister in the Lord, Natalie Jetter says, um, not all people with the same skin color have the same experiences. That Mm -hmm. is a very important comment because Mm -hmm. our culture really wants to paint us into a corner that the black experience, all black Mm -hmm. people have had same experience. That's not true. That's not true. true. Um, And our friend Susanna says, my heart broke when watching the documentary called Light Girls. Is this phenomenon of racial hierarchies, I think is what she's referring to, only in the U.S. or is it in other countries too? And I think that's an important question for us to address. Um, yeah. That uh, this can be a, a bit more global at times. I would definitely say yeah. it's in other countries. Um, what did you notice in South Africa? In South Africa, I noticed the same thing, um, especially among the colored community, where you re- you get a uh, like it the skin color runs the gamut and so you can have people who would be literally as fair as you and people who would definitely be much darker than me but they're all of the same ethnic makeup and within the colored community as opposed to being black African or white Afrikaner. And so um, depending on like, and to hair, be colored is just to be a mixed race, a mixed race. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to, to look at things like not just skin tone, but the texture of your hair is your hair. There's a documentary called good oh. hair. If you guys can watch this documentary, it would give so much insight into the conversation around black hair and what is good hair versus what's not good hair. And so I saw that conversation a lot. You see people with, because um, there's a certain hierarchy in the black community, even about hair. Yes. That people, many outsiders might not be aware of. Mm-hmm. And so you get this racial hierarchy or colorism as, um, I feel like it's more commonly known within the group. You know, you see colorism, but then I don't know if it's hairism. You see this hair texture thing. You get um, eye color. I saw that a lot within um, the kids within South Africa. If they had lighter colored eyes, they were con- girls would be considered as pretty and things like that. So it is not just in... Um, in America, I've seen it to some degree in Zambia. We've had people write in from India mm-hmm. talking about, you know, different, their different kind of, it shows up a little differently, but somewhat similar in their caste system there and, and 
skin hierarchies. Namibia would be another example. Yeah. 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 You can also find uh, there's people that have done lots of research in uh, Korea and Japan and China. And when, especially when Darwin's when Darwin's science uh, got exported to other nations, uh, they, they use that as a scientific saying, you know, that, oh, we're the exceptional, we're the higher race, we're the higher people on the, on the evolutionary scale. And so they turned that into a, a system of, of racial, you know, hierarchies that are unique within their own cultures. And there's whole articles and even I think a couple of books written on how that influenced a lot of Asian cultures. So, um, you know, now the CRT person says, see the West exported racism. Well, to some degree, that's true, you know, uh, because it was a a construct of, of race, but but again, it only played on the, the the tribalist tendency that exists in every human to to segregate, to divide, to hate, um, and that's why we need the sin cleansing power of Jesus to get over this because it's in every culture, every tribe, every tongue. And there's so much freedom that's available once you can kind of see it through the lens of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so. think that that was pivotal for me in moving away from CRT and understanding. Um, more of what the gospel was and is um it I, like it was just like one day I feel like blinders just fell off and there was a freedom to interact with people who might have had different skin color than me or be of a different ethnicity than me from a place of like family and not always suspicion or something deeply rooted in racism yeah that's good I completely agree All right. Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for watching. Yeah. I'm glad to be a part of it. Always good to talk to you. Bye. Be safe as you travel. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Pray for us. All right. Always good to talk to Joe. Always enjoy our conversations with him. Brother Joe. So let's take a moment, a little pause Mm -hmm. before we do our Mo's moment and wrap out the show here. Uh, to hear from our friends, y'all don't. You're not going to want to miss the away. most moment. Don't I'm telling go you. away. The best is yet to come. We'll have a conversation. That's right. Love our friends at Impact 360. Grateful for their support and partnership. We were there in August, September. September. We were there in September, and we were there in July, I believe. Yeah. And so we'll be back there again next spring. But just thankful for the work that they're doing with young people and training them in a biblical worldview, a historically Christian worldview. They have some of our good friends there. They have yeah. Frank Turek and Elisa Childers, Thaddeus Williams, yeah. Brett Kunkel. They call him Uncle Kunkel. That's deep. <laughs> um, but just really grateful for Jonathan Morrow and his team of people yeah who are definitely diving in with young people to help thread out, you know, what culture is put in and what they've picked up along the way. That's never an easy task. And they're accepting applications right now for next year for uh, 2022 and uh, slots fill up quickly. So if your child is thinking about a gap year, go check out our friends at Impact 360. They also offer one week and two week summer camp for high school students. Yes, and they actually have a, a master's program too. Yes. They're doing all kind of things. Yeah. All right. All right. I so think we're ready for our most moment.
you know, that's the always, glory dust that gets me. They, they always miss your dancing. But, uh, oh, because yeah. it's I'm not really dancing. It's just a little shoulder thing that, that you do up in church when you, you, you know, you just <laughs> I don't know. Don't mind me, people. All right. So this week's most moment, um, I actually I'm going to give a hat tip out to um, Seiko Woods because I saw it on his page and it just made me think uh, it. I think this video really um, captures a lot of the things that I've been saying. So we're going to go ahead and play that video. Dear white liberals, 28 percent of black Americans aged 18 to 44 years old are vaccinated in New York, meaning the vaccine passports deny over 72% of the black community their services. Since you think voter ID is racist, you must surely think that vaccine passports are as well, but you don't. Instead, you want to demonize everyone who refuses the COVID-19 vaccine. So let me tell you exactly why the black community is the most resistant to this vaccine. Let's go back to a time when the government decided that the blacks would be used as guinea pigs without their knowledge. From 1932 to 1972, the government conducted the infamous Tuskegee experiment on black men in an attempt to understand the effects of syphilis. Participants were told that they were being treated for bad blood. We were lied to. From 1965 to 1966, the government conducted experiments on prisoners, the majority of them being black, to understand the effects of Agent Orange. Prisoners were told that this was simply dermatology research. We were lied to. From 1960 to 1971, the government conducted Cold War radiation experiments on poor black cancer patients in an attempt to gain an understanding on how much radiation the human body could take. Patients were told that this would help cure their cancer. Once again, we were lied to. The list of atrocities and deceit goes on, yet white liberals seem to think that they know what's best for us. The truth is, black Americans have authority over our own bodies, not you. We're tired of being controlled, manipulated, and lied to. The bottom line is this, we truly won't know the effects of this vaccine for at least a few years. After all that we've been through, we are allowed to be skeptical. So my question to you, white liberals, is why are you applauding forced vaccinations on those who don't trust it, on those who come from a lineage of trauma due to dark history? I thought black lives matter. I said yes and amen to that video. Now, before we get in our feelings and think, well, Mo's against the vaccine or Mo's for the vaccine or Mo, Mo's not taking a position on that. If you want to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. You don't, don't. That's my position. But, but that's kind of the position of the video. Yes. Well, yes, that is the position of the video. But I also, I don't think that people understand the history of medical experiments on black bodies. And the position that our government has had um, in promoting experiments on black bodies or allowing these experiments to take place. And I mean, what he didn't go into was the gynecological experiments on slave women and like forced um, hysterectomies on women with no anesthesia and how many of them died and like in and, and, and those experiments just weren't among black people. I think that blacks. Um, were the majority of people, but there were white people, there were dogs, there were kids. We have a history with experiments. And so 
the point my point in playing this video is to talk about the marginalization that will occur with mandates and how are we as as christians standing not just um against oppression and marginalization which i think will occur but how do we stand for free will and and the freedom of people which is what something that i think we see in scripture with the image of god and agency I don't know that we're having an, um, I don't want to say enough, but maybe the right conversations in many circles in looking at agency and human free will. And what does it mean to be a human person? To be a human person, I should be able to have human agency and not um, not have things forced upon me. What we're going to begin to see, and I think Sam Say talks about this very well, is an, a new form of marginalization or pushing to the outside of anyone who is unvaxxed, but I believe that we're going to see this in black black communities more so because of our um, hectic history with medical experiments. So I saw this and I was like, you know what? I want to put that out there. This is this is going to be a problem. And I know many in the CRT vein uh, and on the left are like, you know, push this, push the vax, push, you know, make sure that it gets out there. And yet at the same time, not talking about the, the fact that this is going to marginalize the people that you say you want to protect and advocate for. Yeah, I think it's a we're definitely <laughs> in a difficult situation because we just spent the last year talking about anti-racism and any racial inequity is an injustice. You and I have been making the point some racial inequities are unjust mm -hmm. and they should be looked at. Mm -hmm. Not every racial inequity is an automatic injustice. Your point here, I think, is that this situation, if we don't understand the historical context of vaccine hesitancy in the black community, does have the potential of becoming an actual racial inequity that yeah. that does seem to point to being an injustice. Yes. So it is a bit of an awkward situation, culturally speaking. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting, not hearing a lot of voices. I'm waiting for the CRT person to come out and say, hey, hold on, hold the buck. We are about to marginalize an entire group of people. But no one's saying that. Yeah. It's actually this push to me that is more um, materialistic or naturalistic in origin and goes against people's free will and human agency than you know, then looking at the human person, how we are defined by God and the fact that I should be able to to have the free will. Now, par part of having free will means that people will choose the right and people will choose the wrong. People will choose things that are righteous and people will choose things that are unrighteous. People will choose things I agree with and things, and things I, don't, I, don't, I don't agree with. But that's what it also means to be a human person. And we see this all the way back to the garden. And Eat it from the tree. I'm sure God didn't agree with. Yeah. And I think that the issue is it in a place of free expression the point behind that is a competition of ideas and that we have to persuade people and that ties us like let me just try to make a, a connection to the christian worldview you want to talk about sphere sovereignty yeah because um, uncle <laughs> jeff is already in the comments talking about sphere sovereignty i see you go ahead because the the idea of persuasion 
is how the gospel goes forward. Mm -hmm. We don't push the gospel forward through physical force. We don't push the gospel forward through coercion against people's free will. We make, we follow in the pattern of the apostle Paul going in to the synagogues and persuading people, making a case Mm -hmm. um, that he, he put forward arguments that Jesus was the Messiah. This is how we exist in a society of free expression. And so we get this idea of the First Amendment, free expression, free assembly. It goes right into the Christian worldview yes. because it, it, it's, it's founded on the idea that individuals can make choices and ought to have the ability to make certain choices. And historically speaking, medical choices have belonged to the individual. Now, the difficulty, you know, is where is that line? And we can have that whole public policy conversation. Mm -hmm. That's not the point of this discussion. But just to, to help add some historical context to vaccine hesitancy in the black community, I do think that there is a bit of a you're calling attention to something yeah. that that needs to be talked about more if we're going to have consistency. If we're going to have consistency. I yeah. mean, especially in the church, if we're going to have consistency in the culture, I, I don't expect consistency. I don't even expect things, you know, to be anywhere near normal. But in the church, we need to be consistent. We need to um, look at the Imago Day. people who are created in the image of God. All people are created in the image of God. And so what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to have free will? What, do, what does that mean? And how does that impact our conversation in regards to, to, med- to medicine? Yeah. And especially in, in this current era of mandates and things like that. Well, where does my human agency come in? Now, if we're talking about naturalism or materialism, okay, then that's a different conversation. But as a Christian, I don't hold to a naturalistic framework. I I believe that my, that there is a separation of mind, body, soul, or, you know, mind, will, emotions, whatever. It's not a naturalistic position. If I'm going to hold to the Christian worldview, I'm going to hold to free will. Yeah. That that I don't just do things because the chemicals in my brain tell me to do them. And so there's that. Yeah. No, I have free will. I have human agency. And I, I don't know. There's just something about it that I feel like is so missing from the Imago Dei um, position and free will. And on the other side, moving in, looking at critical theory or critical race theory, the advocates and people who are proposing anti-racism and the conversation of whiteness, yet at the same time want to push the narrative that blacks need to participate in medical experiments. Yeah. Well, it certainly gives us some things to think about. I think it adds some historical context in highlighting the the issue from uh, why some people in the black community are so hesitant. So. So that was it. I am sure by the morning I'll have a thousand emails. I'm sure you will. (laughs) That's okay, folks. Come for me if you want to. But hey, just remember, you don't have to listen to the world. Yes. (laughs) Get your shirt from Stand to Reason. Yes. And come for me if you must. (laughs) All right, friends. We will be dark next week. Are we? Yes, because we are in Seattle. Yes. 
So pray for us in that Seattle trip, please. Pray for the whole Stand to Reason team. Yeah. Yeah. So we are winding down our podcast season. We've only got a couple um, episodes left. We're going to be on a hiatus for November and December Mm -hmm. and give us a little rest, help us get caught up with some things as a family and um, ministry wise. So we just want to give you a heads up about that. So we've got a couple of podcasts left. Uh, in October, and then we will be on hiatus for a little bit. And we'll come coming back in January. That's right. Yes. Oh. All fresh and new. That's right. Like a shiny new penny. We're coming back. All right. I don't even know. Where I, see, you talking about a... Fr- never mind. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> just pray for us. We hope that you have a great weekend, rest of your weekend, and we will not see you next week. We'll see you in two weeks. God bless you. Good night. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.